Hello and welcome back to the Talking Leadership TV podcast series. Thanks for joining us for the first podcast for April 2023. My guest today is Barton Green. Barton is the Chief Executive Officer of the Committee for Brisbane, an independent, apolitical, membership-based organisation that advocates on behalf of Greater Brisbane. The Committee's vision is for a Greater Brisbane to be the world's most livable place, an ambition that drives its agendas. In 2021, the Committee and its members developed and published a suite of policy papers Brisbane 2033 Legacy Project, the Committee for Brisbane, the year after the Brisbane Olympic and Paralympics, what could our legacies be? Barton has executive management experience spanning more than 34 years and company director experience of more than 23 years. He has served on the boards of private companies, statutory authorities and not-for-profit organisations in the roles of chairman and deputy chairman. He's a communication and marketing expert having spent more than 40 years as a journalist and communications consultant to the public and private sectors. He's worked in and around politics for more than 35 years, including as a parliamentary reporter and member of the Queensland Parliamentary Media Gallery, a senior ministerial advisor in the Goss government, founder and president of the Government Relations Professionals Association and a government relations consultant. In 2003, Barton was awarded Australia's Centenary Medal for Distinguished Services to Conservation and the Environment. Today we're going to explore Barton's leadership pathway. Thanks again for joining us and over to Barton. Barton, thank you for joining me today, mate. Um, We're looking at the topic of leadership and you've agreed quite um, much to my good fortune to talk to me about your leadership pathway. So let's start at the beginning if we can. Your leadership and its beginnings, what does that story look like, mate? Uh, well, I probably started earlier than most, Eric. Uh, I took my first sort of leadership role at the age of 22. Uh, I had uh, my early career was as a journalist, and I worked as a cadet journalist at the now defunct Brisbane Telegraph over at Bowen Hills there, where the Courier Mail and the Australian are. And um, it, was a, it was a great start to a working life. Uh, but during the time that I was there, this is in uh, 1979, 80, 81, uh, there was the famous, probably faded into history now, but the famous journalist strike where around the country newspaper journalists went on strike because this newfangled technology called visual display terminals were coming into the newspaper rooms and replacing typewriters. Um, And as a young cadet, I experienced uh, my first strike, I guess, in the trade union movement at the Australian Journalists Association. And um, the union helped pay for my rent and it helped pay for my food because as a young cadet, not on work for four or five weeks, uh, it was pretty tough. So about a year or so later, I uh, took a job on the Gold Coast and uh, I put my hand up to become what was then called the House Committee President, so the local chapter of the the Australian Journalists Association at the age of 22, which was a pretty cheeky move because I'd only just been employed there. Uh, and that newspaper was expanding from five days a week to seven days a week. So it was hiring lots of photographers and artists and journalists from Australia and New Zealand. It was a really exciting time, great place to work at the Gold Coast Bulletin. But I, I stepped into that role, I guess, for a couple of reasons. One, I really appreciated what the Journalist Union had done for me as a, as a young cadet. I saw its benefit. Uh, I was a, a really strong believer in the uh, trade union movement, although journalist union was really what you call traditionally a craft union rather than a trade union, but it was still a union with really good people. And uh, about 18 months after I was at the Gold Coast Bulletin, the, the seven-day-a-week experiment failed and they went back to six or five days a week and they made redundant 
30 or 40 staff, many of whom they just employed. So I had to step up with the uh, with the state president and the state secretary of the union as a local representative there to negotiate uh, a way through for people who were about to lose their job, including me. Uh, so I had a really early and fairly tough experience, but uh, through the good work of uh, the senior people who were doing that, we negotiated the most successful redundancy package at that time in the history of journalism. So it was a really interesting experience, and that's how I got started. I quite enjoyed it. It wasn't a challenge for me. Uh, I'm the eldest of six children, so, you know, the eldest always rules uh, and makes the rules. And uh, so I quite enjoyed it. And that started a journey that has really continued for 40-plus years. So um, if I can unpack that a little bit, if you'll allow me, the people that you met through the union movement of the union representing you as a, as a young up-and-coming journo and for the organisations you worked in, was the tenor of leadership one that was different to what you might have experienced later moving away from the journalism field or much the same? Uh, it was different because it was they were quite specific. So this was a, a, a trade union that was focused on industrial issues. So negotiating, this is way before enterprise bargains. This is when everyone worked under awards. There were multiple awards across the country. Um, I ultimately became the state secretary of the journalist union a few years later after travelling to Sydney and then back to Brisbane. Uh, so it was a union that was focused on the working conditions of the men and women who were artists and photographers and camera operators. Uh, and journalists. So uh, the conversations were probably a little different uh, within the trade union movement, same principles, working conditions, health and safety, etc., but uh, focused on a, a very different sort of workforce, very informed and educated workforce, uh, working with some quite powerful owners in, you know, the Herald and Weekly Times and News Limited and, and, you know, the big TV stations. But look, it was a really enjoyable experience. I, hell, I learned a hell of a lot. The stuff I did then, I'd never do now. Oh, okay. Could you elaborate a bit for us? Uh, I listen a lot more now than I did then. I became <laughs> the secretary of the uh, Queensland branch of the Journalist Union uh, when I was 26. Uh, and I was told then I was the youngest ever in the history of Australia to be elected. Um, and I lasted in that job four years and lost the subsequent election um, through some pretty tough campaigning by the person who beat me. It was a really... A cathartic experience for me. My running mate got elected as president, but I wasn't successful as secretary. So from 26 to 31, I ran in, you know, a, a small trade union, had about 1,500 members, but I was on the national executive as well. Uh, and I was pretty bullish, you know, uh, in my 20s, um, traveling the state, meeting really good people, but having a pretty firm hand with employers. I, I don't operate like that at all anymore. I still I still have a robust attitude to my job, but I listen a hell of a lot more. And uh, that, for me, was a, a real comeuppance. And, and when you're looking about learnings and leadership, that was a pretty tough one at that age. It took me a while to get over that. But, you know, had that not happened to me, I wouldn't have done all the other amazing things I did in my life. Yeah, I, I, I can hear it in your voice that it's something that's still... Um something you still think about and it comes off the the top of your head fairly quickly. I, I'm, I'm interested to ask the following. Do you think that it's um, experience or age that tempered you over time? Because I've, I've spoken to and I've been that person in my younger days where I'd, I'd 
open my mouth before thinking more than listening and trying to take the nuance of a conversation in. And I don't, I don't put any malice to that. I think it's just wanting to um, achieve an outcome that you're searching for that may be overriding your common sense when you're thinking about things. Is that, is that something that was um, true of you in your younger days and it was tempered with experience or with age, do you think? I, I don't really think age has anything to do with it. I mean, just that experience I've just described to you, by the time I was 31 years old, I'd had more experience than most of my peers in, in a particular field. didn't matter what how old I was. I could have started 10 years later and the experience may have been the same. So, yeah, with age comes experience. That's the old saying. But for me, it, it's really little to do with age. It's the energy you bring to the job. And, um, yeah, look, was I the right person at the right time? Uh, I, I was elected. Uh, we, we had some fantastic outcomes, but it really... It really set me up for a slightly different approach to how I would move through other leadership roles uh, later in my life. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm hearing that. Thank you for sharing that. So let me ask you, um, how do you define leadership? Today I would define leadership as uh, good listening, uh, having a firm view. From, leadership can be different forms. You could be, for example, the chair of an organisation where you are really fully in charge and leading strategy, or in my role today, I'm a CEO, where my leadership is around delivering on the strategy that is developed by my management committee. So there are different styles of leadership. For me, in my current role, uh, it's, it's listening to and advising my management committee and then engaging with the, the hundreds of members that we have who are essentially the captains of industry in southeast Queensland, as well as in the university sector and lots of not-for-profits in our membership, uh, and then working with them to deliver on a program of activity that my management committee has developed. So it's, it's different leadership. As a chair, and I've been a chair uh, quite a number of times, you're responsible for overall strategy direction and really discipline of the board and the organisation, whereas a CEO... You provide advice, but your main job, in my view, is to deliver on the strategy that's been agreed. Yeah, that that makes sense. So for the sake of those who are watching or listening to the podcast, can you give me a sense from in your um, current role or you, you can think back to potentially a previous role? Look, let, let's go with your, your current role if, if you're happy to have the discussion around this. And again, not, not, not to mention names, but... Two-parter, what do you think are the current key leadership issues that you're seeing? We can go macro, if you like, about sort of big picture. And are there any issues that you think are unique to to the sector in, you're, in which you're working in now, mate? Well, the first question, uh, I deal a lot with politics and politicians, and I have done for a long time. Uh, and I represent essentially an industry association. I find now, having worked in politics, in and around politics for 30 plus years, that there's a real disconnect between uh, elected officials and industry, where there's an enormous desire by industry to play a role in developing, designing, progressing our communities and providing advice to governments, particularly firms that work on a global scale and can tap into the zeitgeist, you know, every, anywhere in the world instantly. Uh, and, and governments, and this is a general comment really across all levels, and it's not specific to anybody, but they tend to be less engaging with industry than they have ever been in my experience. Uh, there was a Premier in Queensland 
20 odd years ago who used to have a quarterly, I think, round table at Parliament House and have two or 300 business people there and all the ministers. People got to know each other. They formed a relationship. These days, business engaging with government is perceived to be a bad thing, you know, lobbying, advocacy, influence. I often say to people, do you actually trust governments to make every decision a correct decision? And if you don't, then it's okay to have other people providing advice and informing them of other issues. So leadership for me is uh, an ability to engage. Uh, there's, a, there's a truism, I think, that great CEOs surround themselves with people who are smarter than they are. The job of a good CEO really is, is to conduct an orchestra. I, I'm the CEO of a very small organisation, so I have a tiny staff. I get the lofty title so people will answer my phone calls and open the door when I knock on them. Um, but, I've, I've, you know, I've been on public boards. I've been on not-for-profits. I've, I've seen it from a variety of sectors. And I, I think, for me, the difference in leadership style is now there's a really strong willingness from the private sector, certainly where I am in southeast Queensland, to contribute to discussions about the future of our region. We're doubling in size over the next 20-odd years. There's some significant challenges for this region and opportunities. Um, and, and some governments where um, they don't really want to sit down and engage properly. And I think that's a terrible shame because our community and society would be better if we if we did have a higher level of engagement. Yeah, and, and that's um, that's a reflection on the style of leadership of the government of the day. And I'm, I'm not going to throw... Um. Uh. Any. Any. Ang uh, any anger at any particular government. I think it's a government political thing that. Um. You know, reaching out and understanding what that leadership means at that community level. You engage with that at um, at different levels and um and having previously worked for a not for profit, I understand that um there's there's a nuance to engaging in the way that you're talking about and. Uh, you take the the good with the bad when that um, when it comes to that, and I think you you find in a career, and and would love to get your perspective on this if I could, that uh, you'll get good and bad and indifferent leadership, and you'll see that. And I think you learn from all of those leadership types, the ones that the good leaders that you meet, the terrible leaders that you meet, you can learn something, and those that seem to be indifferent, they sort of give you um, signposts on what not to do. Or what to do in, in certain circumstances. So I, I I really sign on to this idea that you can learn from all sorts of practice. Uh, you, know, you want to be around good practice if you can all the time, but human beings uh, being what they are, it's not going to be good all the time. And um, if you've been in the world of work, yeah, it's, it's not uh, rosy every day, but you hope that it's okay enough so that you can do the job um, without burning out at any point in time. So no, I, yeah. I understand where you're coming from, mate. Um, leader capabilities. So uh, I, I often ask this question when I'm talking to guests around what do, do they have a list or do they have some core leader cap capabilities that they think are criti critical, sorry, for effective leadership? What would that list look like for you, Button? Yeah, uh, competence, definitely. Uh, and, in, you know, an inquiring mind. I guess that was drilled into me from journalism, but the the... The, the true interest in asking questions and learning. Um, empathy, that can sometimes be the hardest one when you're managing staffs particularly. Uh, I think today there is uh, the highest expectation on the ability to manage people that I've ever seen and a, a significantly increased awareness of the health and mental health of, of employees. It wasn't there a long time ago. 
Uh, that's definitely an important part. Now, you can have departments that look after that stuff, but, you know, leadership comes from the top and the culture of an organisation is set by the leadership. I'm a true believer in that. It's practised by the people who are there, but the behaviours are set by the leadership, so I think that's important. Um, look, I think a sense of fun and adventure is good. Now, I'm not talking about you know, running the Reserve Bank here. Uh, that's way out of my experience, but in most organisations, you want people to enjoy coming to work, right? And you want to enjoy coming to work yourself. So I think that's really important. So, look, I could do a list of another 20 things, but they're probably the main ones for me, Eric. And you've got to have confidence. People have got to believe in you. If they don't believe in you, then you're in the wrong job. Yeah, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think the the list, as I hear people talk, talking about what they believe are critical from their experiences, and, and there's no right or wrong to this, it's there always seems to be a mix of the human elements and then your own elements about self-management, um, about being able to manage the people around you and treat them like human beings. And, yeah, this idea of uh, not triggering the BS radar amongst the people that you lead is quite important because I think, um, and I, I'm a big believer of this, you, you you may not agree and some people don't agree with me on this, but I think Aussies pick up on uh, non-authentic people <laughs> very quickly. So if you're not confident in what you're doing or you don't know what you're doing, I think people pick up on that fairly quickly. And um, this idea of building trust amongst the people you lead, let alone the stakeholders that you deal with, that you're competent and you have some sense of where you're going is important. I think it's it's an important part of um, being a leader. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a good list. Um, now, uh, uh, this one, this next topic area is around a post-COVID-19 workplace. Do you think leaders have changed their practice post-COVID? Did COVID do anything or show up anything in leadership that wasn't already there from your perspective? Uh, I think leaders have had to become uh, patient, flexible. Uh, the workplace, in, in my view, and certainly surveys we do and speaking to members will never return to, the traditional workplace will never return to the five days a week at the desk in the office scenario. It's more than likely to be three in the office, two at home, or you know a similar mix of that. That's a big, big challenge. It's a big challenge for culture. It's fine when you've got an established workforce that work from home because they're inculcated into the culture of the organisation. But when you're bringing new people on uh, who may occasionally meet their work colleagues, this is my big worry. It's going to be incredibly difficult to maintain culture within an organisation. That's a big challenge for leadership. I've had uh, some senior leaders talk to me about, you know, they're going to resolve that by mandating you know, compulsory days in the office, same days for certain for people, so that there is a, if you in a sense, a forced coming together. It's not terrible. We're having to force people to come together in the office. Uh, others have a laissez-faire attitude. Well, we'll just let it happen. Uh, I think that depends a little bit on the discipline they're working in. Some some work much easier at home, and productivity can be quite good, probably particularly in the design and creativity fields. But you know, if you're a, if you're a lawyer, you. you You've got to be face-to-face, -face. and certainly, you know, in the F&B industry, it's all face-to-face -face stuff. So there's a patience that's had to come from leaders that I've observed where they know the world has changed. We're not going to get the new settings right immediately. It will take a time to settle. There's a lot of conversation happening about this. I was on a, a global conference last week, Eric, with uh, New York and London and Calgary and uh, Denver, a whole lot of 
uh, cities, similar organisations to me, and we were discussing the post-COVID world, every single one of them had the same issue. So this is a global issue, and nobody has yet come up with an answer. So on a global scale, just that's my thumbnail survey from last week, uh, nobody has yet come up with the answer. So I think leadership um, is going to be different, uh, particularly when you can't eyeball your staff every day. Yeah, I was I was going to um, ask around that that um, the culture question and what does a post COVID nineteen workplace culture look like? And for most of us, uh, for those that are working in that office setting, whatever the industry sector is, yeah, there's going to there's going to be some adjustment. There are some people that, particularly if you have a an extroverted nature that you want to be around other human beings that that's what energizes you i'm what i would call a classic introvert i I can set my own energy i don't need people around me to do that don't get me wrong i love other human beings love my family love being around people but i don't need that to get energized and that's at one level and i guess at the other is that certain industries you just can't work from home you know as much as you've got telehealth for example in the medical field there's nothing like being in the room with a doctor to talk about what's going on rather than being on a screen. Like there are just some industries. Well, you've got to show them the spots, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what's going right. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I, I think though where the tension will come is in areas like manufacturing where you'll have a white and blue collar mix of people where the white collar workers can do the work from home and be with family or be, in a, in a flexible work arrangement, whereas others that are on the on the shop floor don't get that um, level of, uh, of of understanding only because of the nature of the work. And so, yeah, that that tension is one that will play itself out um, over time. Exactly what that looks like, I don't know. But, yeah, you raise raise some good issues there. And if, if this is of any comfort to anyone listening to this, I guess if, if you have national leaders as, as you just alluded to before that if they're seeing the same problems and this isn't just an Australian issue, this is a global uh, phenomenon and it's, it's going to change the world of work. Um, and I mean that globally, not just in, in one country over another. Um, just if I can uh, dig into that a little bit more, do you think from your experiences that um ineffective leadership was shown up a lot more through COVID than uh, people would have given credit for. So leaders that may not have been ready to be leaders were found out in some ways through the COVID period or was, is that too big a bow to draw? I, I think that's a big question because we had no idea. Um, just using Australia, I guess, as a great example, we're a federation of independent states and the response from each state leader was different. Now, interestingly, we probably had, excuse me, the hardest response in Western Australia uh, and probably second hardest response uh, in Queensland. But in Western Australia, the Premier was re-elected with strong support because he understood the nature of his community. Uh, In Queensland, the Premier was also re-elected. And look, these were really tough times. And in Victoria where they probably got hit the hardest, I guess. And, you know, we all had mates and family down there. It was a terribly difficult time for them. The Premier was quite heavily criticised down there. This is my observations from Queensland. 
yet was re-elected. So that's at the most visible leadership during COVID is those that were elected in our public places and we set up the National Cabinet that uh, certainly in the early stages was a wonderful coming together of the leaders of the country uh, to make good joint decisions. In business, I saw responses that were different everywhere, but that's because nobody knew what best to do. People are expressing views about what they could and couldn't do, and then suddenly there was a new rule brought in and you were advised to not come to work or you were asked not to come to work or don't catch a bus. So um, people's health came first, and so that was something that most businesses in our lifetime have never had to experience before. We've had HIV, we've had SARS, we've had swine flu, but you know, in the past that they were never like this one. This was pretty... For me, it was pretty frightening. I've got five kids and four grandkids, and you know, I was very worried for them the whole time. So, look, I think it would be really unfair to pick on any leader who may have had a struggle in a period of time that was never in our life experience, and no one really knew how to respond. I can't think of anybody that failed, in my view, that I knew. Everybody, certainly in my membership, uh, did what they could and uh, while there were a lot of staff movements came as a result that was nothing to do with leadership that was people going you know what things have changed i'm just going to be uh, a little bit more focused on me and there's a lot of lot of people moving around i mean in brisbane there were people moving floors in the same building moving from one firm to another but um we had a lot of people coming up from uh, from victoria uh, we'll see if that's permanent or temporary uh, so I just can't see that you could lay the finger of blame on ineffective leadership in my experience anyway. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's fair comment. I, it's something I've been um, struggling with in my own mind that um, is it unfair given that the pandemic was something so new to everyone, it caught everyone by surprise. Maybe there was never going to be the most optimal response because in in some circumstances some organizations were um immediately on the um uh offense and trying to do things to keep their people um healthy changing as required and just doing it to ensure that the longevity of the business versus you you know you have smaller businesses or or micro businesses where that degree of flexibility is not quite there and so yeah i i i, I agree and oh i'm not going to say reluctantly i think it's quite um quite a uh what, what, what word am i looking for here it's quite probable that it's it wasn't a hundred percent a leadership thing on the flip side of that though for those that were just put into leadership roles that were um potentially learning the role of being a good leader once COVID hit, if you're at the start of that process, then, yeah, if things went to poo, so to speak, then I I think that's reasonable that um, that a response may not have been optimal or suboptimal, not because you didn't have it in you to respond. It's just that the world was coming, caving in around people and you had governments on a daily saying, this is the COVID view. Today, you're only allowed out for blah, 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 or you've, you're in lockdown like Melbourne went through. Um don't, I don't necessarily have a view at the state level. I think the leaders across the country did what they thought was best sure. for their populations, and that's as much as you can you can ask of of people in leadership roles. I personally totally don't. Agree. Yeah, I, I personally don't have a lot of time for critiques of how it was done and when. Um, 
for those that make those strongest critiques, if you were in those bloody roles, what decisions would you have made that would have been any better? Um, so I think it's a rough call to have a crack. But, you know, free society, you can have a, whatever view you like. I personally but think... I come, I come back to my earlier comment, Eric. You know, good leaders surround themselves with smart people, and that's what all the premiers did and the, and the prime minister at the time. They had their chief uh, health officers providing advice and, and groups of scientists, and that's what good businesses did as well. Even if you're a newbie, I'd been in my job for about six weeks when the first lockdown came. Um, but I'm not running a business. I'm running a membership organisation, so a bit different. Um, but you surround yourself with the good people and your decisions are, should never be made on your own. You might be the ultimate decision maker, but it's informed by other people's opinions and expertise. And that's, I come back to my checklist earlier of, of what makes a good leader. It's the ability to, if you can't surround yourself with them, listen to well-informed people who can help you make a well-informed decision. Yeah, and it's as much as you can do. I think I think the the um the discussions around pre, during and post COVID and what was done in organisations is going to be the focus of lots of books, lots of discussions yeah. because I think I think we're still learning from it, and I, I still think we're not out of the woods one hundred percent with COVID. I think, I think it's going to be an ongoing headache for some people, but. Um, might have been yeah. nice not to have a conversation about it. Oh future. yeah, and and uh, yeah. So sorry if it's if, if it's triggered <laughs> something in you, mate. But <laughs> I, I think I think oh. I think it's worth the worth the chat in as much as um, ignoring it is. I think um, not good. And uh, trying to learn from what happened, from what good practice looked like, particularly in your own industry sectors, is um is well worth the discussion. But yeah, I've, I've had a few. People tell me um, when I showed them these themes, do we have to go down this track? I said, yeah, we kind of do. Um, but you know, how much, how much, uh, how much you put on uh, has this changed the world of leadership? I think that's a huge question. I, I think it's changed the way we think about how we interact with other people, because it, it if anything, and this will be the last. Um, I've got to say on this, at least for our discussion, mate. Again, would love to get your view on this that. It, COVID showed to me that um, the, the driving force behind the success of any business is the people in the business. If those people aren't healthy um, and in an environment where you've got a pandemic hanging over your head, that um, putting people first, second, third and fourth is going to guarantee your longevity. And then after that, it's kind of in the hands of the gods. Does that, does that ring true for you? 100%. Can't run a business without people. Uh, you can't run a good business without good people. Um, I agree with you. I don't think we'll see the washout of the impacts of COVID for a little while yet. Um, a lot of the conversations I'm having with my members and my management committee are concerned about the longevity of good mental health of their staff. Some people, you know, coming back to your introvert comment earlier, some people relish the chance to work in the cave full time at home. Uh, others suffered from that. So getting that mix right is really important. The socialisation that comes from working in a collective environment is a really critical part. We, we are a pack animal, human beings. So, uh, you know, we like to be with others generally. So I, I don't know that we'll see the washout for some time yet because we're not back to, everyone talks about the new normal. I don't think we're there yet. We're still trying to work out what that looks like. Uh, and then how do you accommodate somebody 
like Eric, who says, but I'm never coming back into the office. I'm happy working at my cave at home and I'll be as productive as I always was. Well, what's the response to that? You say, well, that's fine, Eric, but you'll not be eligible for any wage rises because, you know, we're going to bring a rule in that says if you want to be up for remuneration reviews or promotion, there's a certain set of behaviours, and that is that you're expected to be in the office working with others. Now, these things may come. We don't know yet. So that's why I think we, we can't see, say, what the washout yet will be but we all need to keep a close eye on what's happening and there'll be a bit of experimentation going on. Let's hope that uh, none of it fails. Yeah, in- interesting scenario. Eric would be looking for another job after that conversation. Yeah. I, would, I would hazard a guess. And that, I don't think it's unreasonable to set some criteria around how you promote someone and, and in the world of work. Yeah, it's about being you know, around teams and making sure they're high performing, but how do you ensure that when people are... Um, off the grid and and um, dispersed geographically, it, it makes it difficult. Um, yeah. But yeah, de- definitely worth um, some more discussions on. But look, this this is about you, mate. So the next topic area is nature versus nurture. Um, are leaders born or are they made? Well, I'll get back to my checklist. And the first thing I said on my checklist was confidence. So that's nature, in my view. Uh, there's an intrinsic. In my, just in my observations, there's an intrinsic uh, desire or, or confidence in leadership that comes with people. Now, not everybody wants to explore that and pursue it, and that's certainly not excluding that some people are made uh, either by good or bad experiences. Leadership can sometimes cause people to be created without their expectation. My general observation is leaders are naturally leaders, um, you, you look at most politicians as a good example who put themselves before uh, election. Uh, it's as I said, it's a pretty cathartic moment. You either get up or you don't get up. Having had a small experience of that, you've got to have a significant amount of confidence to do that. That that's naturally there's an ego involved in it, ego in a good sense involved in these things. So uh, the experience I've had of good leaders is that they are naturally a good leader. They may learn by experience or they will learn by experience to become better at it. But I do think it's nature more than nurture. Wow, that's that's a little different to what I, I typically hear. Um, one, one thing that came to mind as you were responding to me is I had a chat offline to a guest some years ago uh, around the issue of entrepreneurship. And I asked him, yeah, it was him, um, do you think you can um, create an entrepreneur, and he said some of the literature that's coming out is saying, no, entrepreneurs are born that way. There's a certain set of thinking and risk-taking that you can't teach risk. somebody, you know, that risk appetite. And I yep. said, really? And he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting to see what the research says. But um, he pointed to the success and lack of success of some schools that try to go down that track of teaching entrepreneurship and um I'm I'm a fence sitter on that because I want to see more how it plays out. But having spoken to some of these um, uh, different human beings that call themselves entrepreneurs, I think there's a different mindset that they are a different category of of leader to me, and they do things that your average CEO or general manager won't do, partly because of the nature of where they might be working. But I think it's that uh, risk appetite and. If you're managing your own money and you're taking a risk, I think it's very different to managing somebody somebody else's money or like yourself and, and me formerly working in a not-for-profit, you're managing members' money to do things and taking a risk with someone else's money is easier mm. to do. 
but potentially the downside is if that goes to poo, then um, the 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 washout is you're not going to have a job um, yeah. for much longer. So, um, and, and I, I wouldn't uh, describe entrepreneurs as leaders uh, at all. Uh, entrepreneurs tend to be people who are uh, they've got a higher risk appetite than most. They generally see no barriers. Uh, they will often look behind after they've done something. Went, oh bloody hell! How did we get there? We crashed through that one, that one, and avoided that one. Now. Some entrepreneurs do come on to be leaders, but when you have a look at, I guess, in the, in the startup scale-up market, uh, often what happens is that the idea generator is replaced by a person with the competence to actually take it forward. And that's because sometimes shareholders can see the limitations and force a change. Uh, often it happens when the entrepreneur themselves go, you know what, I can't take this any further. I have the idea. We've got it to this place. Uh, and someone else needs to take it forward. So uh, entrepreneurs are not necessarily leaders. And having worked with some entrepreneur leaders over my time, they drive you bloody crazy because no one else can ever be right. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a different world. I, I think I, I I don't I'm not necess- I don't necessarily agree that they can't be leaders, and that's not what you said. I think in my mind, there's that um, I hate doing this, but if you compartmentalize it, that some entrepreneurs can be born leaders. Some are, are never quite there, but have got enough nows to get the people they need. Like you said, surrounding yourself with the right people. And so, in that sense, there's some leadership traits there that I think are essential. Because if if you're an ideas person um, and you're constantly being bombarded with an idea, then you're not worried about the detail. Whereas good CEOs and good managers, they're the ones looking after that. Or at least getting the people, the right people, in to do that. So, and that, that's yeah, a hard, that's catching the hand grenades. That's <laughs> yeah. It, right? yeah, correct, correct. Um, Barton, before we go, final question: Looking back on your leadership pathway, if you could travel back in time to a twenty-year-old version of yourself, what would you tell yourself about being a more effective leader? Uh, listen more, definitely. That's the one thing in my life. Uh, I put it into practice a lot these days and it benefits me every time I do it. So if I look at the young me, you know, he went on to do things in government and, you know, I ran Keep Australia Beautiful for 10 years. That was a really interesting experience. Uh, every time I move forward, I, I improve my listening skills. I think others might have a different view, but I improve my listening skills and I've been the better for it. I'd like to thank Barton for his time. I hope you enjoyed the discussion today and thank you for following the podcast. Drop a like or if you can help me build the channel, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a great week. Look after yourselves and we'll catch everyone on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.